This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. Let's uh, open your Bibles up to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 will be in verses 1 through the beginning of verse 19 this morning. Let's go there, shall we? But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And there he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. You guys ready to be back into Acts? Some study in the book of Acts together. I love this story. Um, But I want to start out by talking about trophies a little bit. Do you ever get a trophy? Nowadays, they hand out. No, (laughs) sorry. Didn't mean to stir up something there. Nowadays, they give trophies for everything, but growing up, you know, I really had to earn trophies. I think I got one trophy at one time for preaching. Uh, I really, yes, I went to a competition for preaching when I was in high school. Uh, but uh, I was talking to Courtney last night, and, uh, you know, like, maybe she's in the same camp, right? Maybe she's only got one or two. It's so like, babe, have you got any trophies? It's like, yeah, tons. For volleyball, for basketball, for writing, for can, uh, for band, like all these trophies. And I'm like, that's awesome. Uh, <laughs> Trophies in and of themselves are, are nothing, right? They're just a piece of plastic normally, uh, you know, bolted to a heavier piece of plastic and probably maybe 10 bucks at tops for, for a trophy. But the point isn't the trophy. The point is the, the trophy displays the achievements of another, the, the, puts on display the attributes of something else or someone else. And I want to say to you this morning that the Apostle Paul is a trophy, He is a trophy of God's grace and goodness. 
And Paul puts on display for us some things about God that we want to know. Now I'm using the terminology because whenever you, whenever you study a, a text to preach it, you always want to be sure that you come to the pulpit that the point of your sermon is the point of the text. If I'm going to preach this, what I'm preaching to you today has got to be what the text says. The point of the sermon is the point of the text. So how do I be sure that that happens? Well, you have to really dig in to know, and it gets tricky when you're doing a narrative, when you're preaching a story, because maybe part of the issue is this is just what happened. And so that's why the story is there. But for us in this text specifically, Paul later will answer the question, why did Luke write this here for us? What was the purpose of us getting the story of Paul's conversion? Well, Paul tells Timothy, that in First Timothy 1, 15 through 16, where he says this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners whom I am foremost, but I received mercy for this reason, okay, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example of those who are to believe on him for eternal life. Paul says it clearly. The reason why I was saved, that you know about it, the reason why he saved me at all is to put on display the fact that our God is a God of perfect patience, amazing grace. God can save anyone. So what I want to, kind of your reaction coming away from a sermon today is to be that very thing. So here's the big idea. I want you to be amazed and encouraged. By God's perfect, by the perfect patience of God, be amazed and encouraged by the perfect patience of God. For you, because you need to know your God is perfectly patient with you. You need to know that. But not just for you. Maybe for some who you feel might be beyond God's reach and that God can save even them. Because... We'll start with this truth. Write this down. Two, two ways which God displays his perfect patience to us. One, he, he displays his perfect patience and that he saves his enemies. God saves his enemies. Isn't it just amazing that one statement there to consider that God saves his enemies? Because it's not what we want done with enemies. And if you read any fairy tale, we love the fact that in the end, the bad guy gets what's coming to him. He was a jerk, he was evil, he deserves justice, and we love it at the end when he gets his comeuppance, and he's destroyed or, or set aside or whatever, and that's what we love is a good story. But God, God loves to redeem and rescue and show grace. In fact, the Bible says this in Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises of some count slowness, but is patient, there's that word again, toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come into repentance. Not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. That's an amazing truth. And God wants everyone saved, even the enemy, even our enemies. And so our prayer is that God would save all of them. Well, uh, Paul certainly was an enemy of God. No question about that. In fact, let's take a look at this in the text together. Would you let your eyeballs fall on uh, verse, chapter 9, verse number 1. Chapter 9, verse number 1 says this. But Saul, now by the way, Saul is Paul. Paul is Saul. And I'm probably going to just be super inconsistent in which I use this morning. So be patient and gracious with me. Can I get a witness? That was really weak. You guys are jerks. But anyway... uh Paul saw, you see this in verse number uh, one of chapter nine, but Saul still breathing threats and murder 
against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, by the way, the way is Christianity. The way are people who are living the way Jesus lived and are following Jesus. That's what it's talking about. He found any, according to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So here's Paul. And look what the text says. It's really clear what, what Luke wants you to get out of this. Breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. So if you can picture this, kind of a, I hate those Christians, man. I want to see them all dead. I mean, that's the picture he's trying to paint here. Really intense, intense hatred. I don't know if I've ever hated anybody to the point where I want to see them dead. Now, I do need to say that I'm really glad that my car is not equipped with missile launchers. Because I just might, in a moment of weakness, hit that button. You know what I mean? No? Okay, good. You shouldn't know what I mean. But um, uh, I've never wanted anybody dead. But here's Paul just breathing out and just his hatred, his hatred toward them. He's for sure an enemy of Christ and for sure an enemy of God's people. I was trying to think, who are our enemies today? Who is the church's enemy today? My mind goes to several people. I, I think of this guy named Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is a, is a very avowed atheist. And he's written several books, uh, The Blind Watchmaker, Climbing Mountain Probable. I've read several of them because he's, uh, you know, he really, um, holds to evolutionary processes and is way against God and has debated Christians and all of that. And, but, but I don't know that he'd want to see him dead necessarily. Uh, my mind goes to just our culture in general. I mean, it just feels like our culture is massively against Christianity right now. So it seems like the enemy is all around us in one sense. But of course, my mind goes to um, um, militant Islamics, and there are Muslims around the world that for sure want to see Christians dead. In fact, they are killing Christians. So this is happening. Imagine before he died, Osama bin Laden coming to know Christ. I mean, this is the kind of level you're talking about here, like God's amazing grace in all of this. But Paul, no doubt, hated, hated the church. You ever think about why? Why did Paul hate the church so much? Well, I'll sum it up this way, and I'm going to show this to you. Paul hated the church because Paul loved himself. Here's what I mean by that. I'm going to show you Philippians 3. This is Philippians 3 on the screen here for you. Um, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says there, now watch this, circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, that's the best tribe in his mind you can be part of, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, so Paul was a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. See, Paul was a Pharisee, and Paul was a rising star in Judaism. And and he loved the adoration of men. I mean, you just got to read the Gospels to see how much Pharisees love the applause and the adoration of men. And here he was. He's given his life to this. His, his everything. He's doing well. And people know him. And he's zealous. And he's passionate. And here comes Jesus and the church. And they're trying to get in and wreck all of this and take this away from me. 
There's a very personal reason attached to Paul's hatred. And I think if you get out there and you begin to do this thing we're asking you to do, reach out to your neighbors, share Jesus with people, you're going to find there are some people that hate Jesus, hate Christianity. And I want to tell you, it's never, ever because of intellect and reason alone. Do you know that? It can't be. Because God really is the creator. God really is the one who, I mean, this is a true story. This is actual fact. And so you can't just arrive there by intellect and reason alone. People get there because of other things. They want you to believe it's by intellect and reason alone. They'll try to convince you it's by intellect and reason alone. There's always a personal story. So how many of you guys remember the days of American Online? Anybody here besides me? American Online? All right, a couple of you guys. And uh, um, I was uh, got online like in 1993. Yes, there were computers back then. Shut up. And so in 1993, I got on and, and, uh, uh, I, you know, it was the old style. The You've got mail. Yeah, you've got it. You know all that. So, um, uh, and I would go into Christian chat rooms. You get in these chat rooms and you would think, oh, it's where Christians come together and they encourage one another. And nope, it's where atheists come in to cause trouble and to fight Christians and, and I got into this long, months-long debate with this guy who's, uh, you know, his name, screen name was NextGen84. So I knew when he was born, at least. I had that part down. And um, But, you know, we just talked back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then uh, just along the way, little snippets of his story began to come out. He had let slip. And turns out, sure enough, he grew up in a very legalistic home. Uh, he couldn't, you know, abide, you know, religious, legalistic. He couldn't really live that out. Who can? He never heard about the grace of Jesus. So all that did is made him feel rejected by his family. And that feeling of rejection made him feel rejected by God. And therefore, he hated God. You've probably heard this before, but this is very, very true. The axiom of uh, atheism is there is no God and I hate him. And they hate God. But here's what I want to say to you. When you're trying to reach people like that, you're not going to get there by intellect and reason alone. You know how you get there? Love, grace, patience. Have them into your home. Care about them. It's amazing what God will do with all those things. But Paul was an enemy of God. Paul was an enemy of God. Let's talk about us. Who's Paul? Who are we? Do you know? Before Christ, you were an enemy of God. Well, hold on a second, Pastor. Not me. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up with Christian parents. I've been at church since the day I was born. Some of you probably were literally born in the church. Tell me I'm not a... Tell me I'm an enemy of God. For sure I'm not an enemy of God. Well, look, uh, go to your... Take your Bibles, go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And I want to see this, I want to lean in on this a bit because I think especially in our city, especially here in the the buckle of the Bible belt, I think we really need to be careful. We understand what is going on here. So um, uh, growing up in, with Christians doesn't make you a Christian. Growing up in a home where you go to church every Sunday doesn't make you right with God. In fact, take a look at this in Romans chapter 5, verse number 6. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse number 6, says this. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still, what's your Bible say, church? Sinners, Christ died for us. Now keep reading. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, you see that? While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we have been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Uh, Very clear. Before we came to know Christ, we were, church, enemies. Enemies of God. Enemies of God. And I got to help you with that because growing up in a Christian home does not make you a Christian. You are by default an enemy and you still have to have a time in your life where you turn from your sin and you run to Jesus. So here, here's something that I, I found when I'm here in the Midwest sharing Christ. When I'll say to somebody, hey, tell me, uh, when did you come to know Jesus? And here's what I'll hear over and over again. I've always known Jesus. I've always known Jesus. And what they mean by that is Jesus was always present in their home in terms of their parents loved Jesus, they grew up in the church, all those things. But listen, even for someone who's grown up in that environment, there has to be a time when you realize, no, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. And because of my sin, I deserve hell. I do. But God in his love sent Jesus to die for me and to pay for my sin. And he rose again over that. And I got to call on him and I got to ask him to save me based on his death and resurrection. That's how you come to know Christ. Now, what we want to do as parents, we really want all of our kids to be saved. Amen for your kids to be saved. Uh, I want my kids all to be saved. So what we'll do is in a little Jimmy when he's two years old. Hey, Jimmy, do you love Jesus? Uh-huh. Do you want to ask him into your heart? Uh-huh. Woo-hoo, Jimmy got saved. Well, did he? Jimmy has to know he's a sinner. Jimmy has to know Jesus died for him and rose again. And Jimmy has to believe and call on him. We were always careful with our kids. When our kids came and said, hey, Dad, I want to talk to you about Jesus. I would always say, hey, okay, pray about that and come back to me tomorrow. Why would you put your kid off? Because I want to be sure it's real and the Holy Spirit's leaning on him. To have that time to really be sure they know Christ. All right. We're enemies of God. We are enemies of God. Here's what I want to talk about next. We've talked about who we are. We've talked about who Paul was. But even though Paul was an enemy, and even though we were enemies, God still saved us. We still have a loving and amazing God. So let's spend some time talking about who God is. What this text does is it shows the glory of Jesus Christ. And whenever we stand up here in the pulpit, we want to open up God's word for this purpose to show you how incredible and amazing our Jesus is. And Jesus is incredible in this text. We want you to see it. First of all, I want you to know this. Our God is sovereign. Our God is sovereign. That means, listen, he is in absolute, complete control of everything. And he's had a plan from the beginning of the ages. And he chooses whom he will choose. And he chose Paul. In fact, look at the text. I want your eyes to fall. It's really clear in verse number 15. So when God is talking to Ananias, he says this in verse number 15. But the Lord said to him, go for he is a, what's your Bible say? A chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. 
and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. He's a chosen instrument. God selected him. But I want you to know this. Not only does God choose Paul, but if you know Jesus as your savior, God's chosen you. Here's Ephesians chapter 5, which says this. Paul, our blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption uh, to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. God has chosen us. Here's what that means. Because here's where I want to really encourage you. Uh, how many of you, and you can just answer this in your heart, but how many of you have somebody who seems like they might be on being saved? I got people in my life of like, man, I don't know. I've talked to that person and talked to that person and talked to that person. Can they really get saved? Can they really get saved? I don't know. Uh, if God has chosen them, they will. And my assumption is that everybody's chosen. You with me on this? Because I don't know who's chosen and who's not chosen. So I'm just going to just make the safe guess and say everybody is and I'm after everybody. And I listen, I have seen God save people who I thought would never come to Christ. I know I've told many of you the story of Courtney's dad. I mean, for years we prayed for Courtney's dad. For years we prayed for him and prayed for him and prayed for him and shared the gospel with him. And every chance I would get, I would talk to him about the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. He'd come to church. If he was sitting here from preaching and like uh, there's dad sitting there, whatever I'm preaching is done, I'm be sure I'm preaching the gospel. He's going to hear the gospel again. Preach, 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 preach. And it just never seemed to hit, never seemed to hit, never seemed to hit. Well, then he got cancer. And all of a sudden, he was faced with this life-threatening thing. And we were talking on the phone one day, and I just said, listen, Dad, I've got to tell you again. It's not about, you know, he was Catholic. It's not about what church you go to. It's not about any of that. It's just about what you believe about Jesus, that you believe that he died for your sin and rose again. He said, Jamie, I really believe that. And from that point on, we saw a change. All of a sudden, he was reading his Bible. All of a sudden, he was talking to Courtney about things of the Lord. Like, what, what's going on here? This is really strange that he's all of a sudden doing this. Now, he, we had a couple months of that, and then all of a sudden, he died of a heart attack, completely unrelated to the cancer. And God had a plan to save him. We praise him that he did, and he did, because nothing was going to keep that man from being saved if God had chosen him. And I want to say, God has chosen. God has chosen. He is sovereign. Now, I want you also to notice this. God is Lord. God is Lord. I'm leaning in on that because of this. It comes up several times in the text. But for now, let your eyes fall on verse number six. So here, actually jump back to verse number five. So verse number five, Paul asked God, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now watch verse number six. But rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. Well, hold on a second here, pal. I'm Paul. I'm the Pharisee of Pharisees. According to the law, I'm blameless. And here you are telling me what to do? He didn't have that reaction because immediately he bowed down to Jesus, not only as his Savior, but also his Lord. And he simply obeys God. Now, can this be taken too far? Yes, it can. Have people taken too far? Yes, they have. But I do want to say this. There's got to be some time in your life, man, when Jesus becomes more than just your buddy. Jesus becomes more than just your friend. 
Do you understand he's king of kings and church lord of lords? And this is his word. And it has authority. And there have got to be times when God's word stops you in your tracks. And I'm not going to go down that road. I'm not going to do that thing because God's word says no. And he's my Lord. And I want to obey him and walk with him. Are there times when you have to say like that thought is not okay. And I've got to take that thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ because he is my Lord. Are there times when that action, that temptation you have, you got to be like, no, God's word says no. And, and he's got to be my Lord and I've got to do what he's told me to do. Let me ask it this way. Can Jesus call the shots in your life? I mean, really call the shots in your life through his word. Can his word stop you in your tracks? I want to encourage you. Not, I mean, it's important. It's the same thing with Ananias. He comes to Ananias. He says, do this, do this, do this. And the expectation, no, you just obey because I said so. Now, I can trust what he says, right? I know I can trust what he says because he didn't spare his own son. Because Jesus went to the cross for me. So I know that I can trust him. And I just walk in obedience whatever he tells me to do. Not only is Jesus Lord and sovereign, but obviously this in the text, he's so gracious. God is gracious. God saves him. Him. The man who murdered Christians. Like I said before, it's like Osama bin Laden coming to know Jesus. Like shocking. Paul or Saul, this guy. The man who stood by when Stephen was stoned. The man who drugged men and women to prison, leaving children homeless. This hater of Christ, God saves even him. He is so gracious. And though the word grace doesn't really show up in Acts, Paul certainly points back to it. Here's 1 Corinthians 15, 8 through 10. Last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. God's incredible grace. And I want you to know, there is no sin too great that God's grace cannot cover it. There is no sin too great that God's grace cannot cover it. Not in your life and not in the lives of other people. God is that amazing. A couple of questions here. When do you doubt that God's that God will be patient with you? When do you doubt it? Have you doubted God's patience with you? We all do. And maybe you're like, okay, if I sin really bad, like if I do the really bad sin, then, then God's not going to be patient with me anymore. Or more than likely, most of us fit in this camp, when you sin too many times. Like I've done it again and again and again and again. How can God still be patient with me if I keep screwing up in the same way over and over again? His page, the whole purpose of Paul's salvation is to put his perfect patience on display. He can save you. What does God's patience with Paul teach you about his grace toward you? All right, I told you two key truths. Truth number one that just is on display because of Paul's salvation is this. God saves his enemies. That's an amazing truth. But then how about this? God uses me. God uses people. God uses nobodies to do it. 
Here's what I mean by that. If you dive into the text, we'll see this clearly. Let's look at, uh, first of all, verse number 10. Just follow along as I read. Now, uh, there was a disciple uh, at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. Pause there for a moment. First of all, do you know that God didn't need Ananias to save Paul? He didn't need him. He could have done it so many, a bird could have flown and sat on his shoulder and received the Holy Spirit. But yet God chose to use Ananias. And I love this. He calls him by name. God knows your name. God knows your name. I love early how he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He knew Saul's name, but of course he did, right? Saul was notorious. Everybody knew Saul. But how about Ananias? Who's this guy? Well, the reality is we don't know because this is the first time he's mentioned and the last time he's mentioned. Ananias was a nobody, but praise God, he uses nobodies. Would you say this? Say, God uses nobody. Say it. God uses nobodies and be comforted because God uses me. Turn to your neighbor and say, God uses you. <laughs> he just called your neighbor a nobody jerk. So anyway, uh, but it's really, really, really good news. God uses nobodies. We want to be somebody. This is a temptation, especially for pastors. We want to be somebody. I want people to be, you know, online checking us out and thinking we're awesome and all of that. But here's the thing I need to just embrace so that it's, it's nobodies. You guys ever hear of a guy named Edward Kimball? Edward Kimball, some of you may have heard it in a previous sermon illustration, but if you, that's the only place you probably have heard his name, Edward Kimball. So Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher, a very faithful Sunday school teacher, and loved his students. And he would go and visit his students outside of Sunday school class. And he was out visiting one student who worked at a shoe shop. And, in fact, they got to talking and he, he, they went to the stock room and began really talking and really sharing. And it turns out this student of his comes to know Jesus as his savior. Edward Kimball led this dude to Jesus. And that student was D.L. Moody, who went on to lead many to Christ. But who knows Edward Kimball? Praise God, not a lot of people, because his reward is in heaven. But God can use him. And who can God use you you feel like a nobody, you feel worthless, you feel like, what do I got? Well, that's exactly where you need to be. Because God uses the weak things to confound the strong and the foolish things to confound the wise. Let's be weak and foolish for him. But he knows your name. Not just this, he gives you instruction. Let's look at this in the text. So here we are now in verse number um, 11. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has been given a vision that a man named Ananias come and lay hands on him so that he may regain his sight. So God tells him exactly what to do. Now, by the way, people get caught up with things like this. Okay, the name is called Straight. Oh, what does that mean? What does that mean? Why, why is it called straight? And at the house was a man of the name of Judas. Ooh, Judas is the guy that betrayed Jesus. And now this guy's named Judas. What's that all about? Well, here, here's what I'll say to you. I think that the Bible records the name was of the street was called straight because the name of the street was called straight. And the guy's name was Judas because that was his name. 
And uh, unless the Bible tells you it's a big deal, then don't just be very, very careful about making big deals of small things. A little Bible study tip. Like if, if God wanted you to know what Jesus wrote on the ground in John 8, he would have told you what Jesus wrote on the ground in John 8. We don't know what he wrote on the ground, so we don't need to know. And, uh, but all this to say, what he does do here is he gives him very specific instructions. First of all, rise and go. He tells him where to go. Then he says, lay hands on him that he may receive his sight. So that's what he told him to do. He told him exactly what he needed to do. Now, wouldn't that be awesome? Like you're in the coffee shop and you're ordering, you know, your thing, your hazelnut latte and don't judge me. You have your drink. I got my drink. I like hazelnut lattes. All right. So you're ordering your, your drink and I say what I meant was double shot espresso. I don't know, whatever's most manly, uh, but you're in there, you're ordering that. And then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit says to you, you know, go up and ask the barista about his mother and how she did with her surgery. And when you do, he'll be amazed. And then he'll ask you about Jesus and you can lead him to the Lord. He'll be like, Oh, sweet. Thank you, Lord. I know exactly what to do. Now, I'm not denying the Holy Spirit can't lead you into some specific moments like that, but I'll say this. He's already given you instruction on what to do. You already have his word that tells you what to do. Mark 16, 15 says this, and he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. So if I'm at that moment, I'm like, "Mm, should I share the gospel with that person? I feel the spirit leaning on me, and I'm like, "Mm, should I share the gospel with that person, or shouldn't I? Let's just say you should. And give it a shot and see what happens. Now I get it. Like It has to be as you live life. I think it's why Matthew 28, 19 says this. Uh, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now here's what you need to know. Go, therefore, can better be translated this, as you are going. Go, therefore, is really as you are going. So what that means is that as you live your life, you're putting on this mentality of, I want to be an ambassador of Christ. I want to be an ambassador of Christ. So um, uh, I think I mentioned this before, but like I go to the same guy that cuts my hair as much as I can. His name is Clint. And I go to Clint over and over again because uh, I want to get to know Clint. And I want Clint to get to know me. And I want to be able to take my conversation with Clint from a surface conversation. And I don't know if I... We've talked about it from the pulpit before or not, but but Clint, he has like the exact same coloring that I have. So the same hair color, same skin color, same eye color. So we can have conversations about, hey, you know, um, isn't it great being a used-to-be redhead or whatever case may be? And have conversations about it. But it goes from surface. Eventually, I want to be able to get into serious conversations when he's comfortable enough with me to share some things going on in his life. And eventually I want to, cause I want to get to a spiritual conversation where we talk about Jesus. Every conversation in my life, I want to move to talk about Jesus. And that's why we kind of gave you this neighbor plan. Do you guys, have you guys done this yet? We handed it out a couple weeks ago. I want to encourage you back to this to say, get a hold of this again. Walk through this again. Pick out those five people who you're specifically trying to reach. Connect with them. Get to know them. Find out what they need so you can care for them. So connect, care, and care for them, and care for them. Invite them into your home. Do life with them. I think hospitality is a key to modern-day evangelism. If I can say that again, I think hospitality is a key to modern-day evangelism. People freak out when you invite them into your home. Like, really? That's weird. But they feel so loved by that. I'm telling you, it's a good, good thing. Um, and then communicate, tell them about the gospel, tell them about the gospel, and then keep going. Now, I think I handed this out, and a lot of people were like, man, that's, 
I'm already busy, Pastor. My kids are involved in 15 things, you know, basketball, volleyball, basket weaving, cat shaving. They're in it all. And you want me to, if it was a thing, my kids would be there, okay? Uh, but um, you asked me to add something else. Well, I love what Matt Chandler said because it's really, really accurate. I'm not asking you to add another meal. I'm just asking you to add another chair. Invite people into life with you. Open up your home and see what God will do if you love them, love them, love them, and win the opportunity of sharing Christ with them. God knows. God gives you instructions. How about this? God answers your fears. Let's look at this in the text. Uh, Ananias has a little pushback on God. Verse number 13. But God answered, but Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Look, he's afraid for himself. He's afraid for his family. He's taking a risk by going to this guy. He's afraid. Naturally, he is. And as we're challenging you to get out and to be preachers of the gospel, to reach the city, reach your neighbors, it's a scary thing. But God comes and answers. And that's what you have in verse number 15. And the Lord says, go, for he is a chosen. Look, I'm going to save him through you. I'm going to use you. Uh, He's going to come to know Christ. He's going to have to suffer, but he's going to be used greatly by me. Go. And God comforts his fear. God doesn't mock his fear. God doesn't tell him he shouldn't be afraid. God just simply says, I have a plan. Trust me. And I want to say to you, uh, not only did God say to, as you are going, make disciples. In that same text, Matthew 28, 20, he says this. Teaching them to deserve all things I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. Your God is with you. Be comforted by that. And then lastly, God uses you. God uses you. And I want you to see this now in verse number 17. So Ananias departed. Why? Because God told him to and entered the house and laying his hands on him. Well, why did he do that? Because church, God told him to. So he did it. So he faithfully served. Write that down. Ananias faithfully served. He faithfully served. He just did what God told him to do. But then also write this down. He lovingly served. He lovingly served. Because look at how he addresses Saul. He says, what does your Bible say? He says, brother Saul. Oh man, come on. Can you imagine being Paul, Saul? Can you imagine like, I am blind in the house of the enemy. The very people I was trying to kill Now I'm in their home. I'm blind. I can't see what's going on. They could easily take my life. There had to be an incredible amount of fear and trepidation in in Saul. And so Ananias says, how are we going to treat you? How are we going to treat you? How about this? How about like family? And he calls him brother Saul and he loves Saul and reaches out to him. Church, I am telling you. When we faithfully obey our God and share the gospel and we do it out of love. And you're going to see firsthand God do awesome things in your life through other people. So who is it for you? There's got to be someone that you're like, that person probably is never going to come to know Jesus. Coworker, family member, I have no idea. But I want to end today just by praying for them. 
So I want you to get that person firmly in your mind. I got a guy, I prayed for him in the first service, I'll pray for him again. And we're just going to pray for these people. So what I want you to do is right now, kind of silently where you are, I want you to be so encouraged that God rescues, God rescues, God saves, and no one is beyond saving. But before we pray for that person, which we're going to in just a moment, can I ask you, do you believe you're beyond rescue? Have you come and come and come and come, and yet in your heart you feel like, God wouldn't save me? If these people knew all the things that I've done and thought and looked at and said, if they knew, they would hate me. And maybe you feel God feels that way towards you. Look at Saul, the murderer, the persecutor of the church. God saved him. God can save you. And God can save your friend. Why don't you take a moment and pray for that person. Let's pray for him together. Father, I love the fact that in this room right now, also in the first service, there are just lots and lots of people being prayed for. By name, specifically. People who we may believe are beyond reach. But you've told us very clearly in your word, you've shown us again today that no one is beyond your reach. And Father, we're assuming everyone can be saved, so we're reaching out to everybody. And I pray, Father, that you would save these folks we're praying for right now. Or bring something into their life. Or for Saul, it was sudden and incredible and bright. And for others, it's simple. And it's a word. It's a verse. It's an act of love. And you know what everyone needs. And Father, we're praying that you would just bring that into these people's lives. And Father, would you use us? Lord, I love this church. I know that we have a heart to be those who are reaching out. We have a neighbor plan that we're trying to enact to be better about reaching our neighbors. Father, would you help us to be faithful and obey you and to do it in love. And then, Father, let many come to know Christ through that for your name and that alone. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Redemption. You are loved.